Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. I want a Corvette. I want a Pontiac too. Let's go all out and buy a Cadillac too. I can hardly wait for this dream to come true. Are you old enough to remember the 50s, that golden age of prosperity following the Second World War? It's a great life, eh, Bob? And tomorrow will be even better for you and for all the people. We felt richer then than we do now. A famous book at the time called America the Affluent Society a book whose title would be laughable today. People would reject it, even though we have actually, in terms of gross national product and so forth, more than twice as much. Everybody's home has got twice as much stuff in it. Back in 1958, only 4% of American homes had dishwashers. Now more than half do. Less than 1% had color televisions. Now it's 97%. And there were no microwaves, VCRs, or personal computers. A uh, four-car garage is probably because of storage. You never have enough storage. And so, you know, you never have enough garages. Never enough. So much stuff. So little space. Even though the average new house has grown larger every decade. Now many new homes have three-car garages. Nearly 900 square feet of garage space alone is almost the size of an entire home in the 50s. Oh, darling, it's going to be just perfect. You're about to enter a beautiful, exciting, wonderful new world. The world of 1960. A wonderful new world of Ford. In that gilded new world, hardly any new cars had air conditioning. Today, more than 90% do. Economy cars now offer more features than luxury cars did then. Color's important. I don't worry too much about gas mileage at all. It's not, it's not something that I look at. A lot of money. <laughs> yes, it is. Today's hottest-selling cars are expensive, gas-hungry sport utility vehicles. A lot of people, it's a status symbol, so they're willing to spend the thirty to forty-odd thousand dollars to uh, drive one of these vehicles. Yes, fun to see, fun to drive, fun to buy. The new Chevrolet. Just as they did in the 50s, new cars still help us keep up with the Joneses. Convenience was the new ideal, disposable the means. Use it once and throw it away. Families were encouraged to buy a new car every year. Marketers called it planned obsolescence. Products became obsolete because they were out of style, whether they still worked or not. They were saying... The car that you had last year won't do anymore, and it won't do anymore because it doesn't look right. There's now a new car, and that's what we want to be driving. Consumer society was triumphant. I want a Corvette. I want a Pontiac, too. Let's go all out and buy a Cadillac, too. I can hardly wait for this dream to come true. Can Can we all do that together? I want a Corvette. I want a Cadillac, too. (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing. 
I want to welcome you to part two of our current message series, Why the Devil Takes MasterCard, Jesus on Money, Debt, and Your Stuff. If you're just joining or visiting with us for the first time, in the interest of full disclosure, I need to reveal something to you about this community up front. Many of us have the flu. (laughs) Most likely, the person who is sitting on the right or the left of you is infected. Now, before you go covering your mouth or running for the door, understand this is no ordinary flu. It is a special strain of infection unique to this area of the country, and especially those of us who came of age in the latter half of the century were particularly susceptible. It's called affluenza, and it is epidemic. The symptoms are not necessarily visible from the outside, no sneezing, no coughing, but it's marked by that bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. A second definition might say it's an epidemic of stress, overwork, waste, and indebtedness caused by dogged pursuits of that American dream. But as we learned last week, it's also a spiritual illness that Jesus counseled his followers to avoid at all costs. Watch out, Jesus counseled in Luke 12, verse 15. Be on your guard. It's coming at you against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, that sounds like sage advice. We all intuitively know that money can't buy lasting happiness, but it sure gives us a a heck of a thrill, doesn't it? I mean, the pull of it, of nice things, of upping the ante in terms of your lifestyle, it's all around us. New and improved, 12 times the speed, 40% more, 35% off, double your pleasure, too much is not enough. The call, the siren call to acquire, consume, spend, and upgrade is pandemic in our part of the world. And it's almost beyond remedy. I learned I was affected a couple years ago when I was confronted with its distorting side effects head-on early in the morning. It actually involved two very basic human needs. I mean, basic to living here and working here in the Northeast, driving to work. How many of you drive to work? And getting coffee. How many of you drink coffee in the morning? Transportation, beverage, Simple, basic requirements. But here's how affluenza works. When, when I was working in Summit, the first thing I'd do is get in our old, beat-up, 93 olds, vintage, and pull out of the driveway. And it was an old car. It had flaking paint. You know, it's like the back right panel always flaked no matter what you did. It had a leaky back window. But all in all, it was actually very reliable. But as I, as I went down the street to hit the on-ramp to the highway, there was a billboard by the train station that kind of just, you know, caught my attention. I was sitting at the light, and it was an ad for the Lexus hardtop convertible with this great caption, other cars may become groupies. And, you know, so I quickly processed that and think, now, I'm sitting there in my olds, you know, and, and there's, there's the car of luxury and style. And as I just kind of noticed the drip from the leaky window in my backseat drip, drip, I'm thinking, that is a car of class, not like this bomb I'm driving. That would be something to be seen in. This is all happening like in the span of, you know, a red light. In fact, that's no ordinary car. I mean, as the billboard points out, it's the rock star of cars. Other autos may indeed become groupies, right? The message, if you missed, is that this car announces whoever's driving it has the leading position in society. And it's got to inspire envy among friends, neighbors, and all the other suckers huffing it up down on the sidewalk. Finally, significance, right? 
And what I love is that the theologians at Lexus printed their gospel message at the bottom. This is not my commentary. This is theirs. It says at the bottom of the billboard, temptation is not a sin. It's a standard feature. Get it? Love that. I got it. When I first saw the billboard, this car is for a privileged few. Most of you couldn't be in this car. Only those of us who appreciate excellence in design and craftsmanship, and more importantly, deserve it. You think I'm kidding? Check out this vanity plate on the back of this Mercedes I took a picture of while waiting in line at the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel. You know, I have my gadgets, and I have like a little digital photo, and I'm like, click, I deserve it. (laughs) So there you go. Basic need of transportation gets turned into a matter of reward, of personal significance, and affluence, right? I mean, the owner of a sleek and sporty roadster undoubtedly values the finer things in life, not just autos, but clothes, homes, travel, and companionship. And there it is. The voracious appetite for upwardly mobile living and upscale status is activated. And God's whisper, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's kind of drowned out by the sound of the 27 Watt Bose mini disc player in the front dash. So I've been driving for three minutes. And already I'm hyper aware of how deprived I am. By how much I'm missing out on. And I haven't even had coffee yet. So I pull into the gas station to fill up my pathetic and embarrassing lifestyle statement. And, and think about getting an Exxon coffee for 75 cents. Did you know Exxon still sells coffee, by the way? It does. And I'm getting ready to have my coffee, but across the street, there is, you guessed it, Starbucks. Starbucks where for only $4 more... I can have a double latte cinnamon spice mocha ice frappuccino. So I run over there and get one, you know, and it was pretty good. <laughs> and besides, I'm going to a meeting with some other people I've met, and, you know, I get this, this drink from this really, with this really cool cup, the little green logo of approval that brands me, an upscale, sophisticated beverage connoisseur. I mean, you can't walk into a meeting with a styrofoam Exxon cup, can you? <laughs> it's so ghetto. It's like, <laughs> hey, fill her up, <laughs> There's an author by the name of Benjamin Barber, and he first coined that term, Mick World, in a 1995 book that put just a finger on that pervasive consumer impulse that's come to pervade almost all areas of our daily life. He wrote that Mick World is a product of popular culture driven by commerce. Its template, Barber writes, is American. Its form is style. It is about culture as commodity, apparel as ideology. Its symbols are Harley-Davidson motorcycles, and Cadillacs hoisted from the roadways where they once represented a mode of transportation to the marquees of global market cafes like Harley-Davidson's and the Hard Rock where they become icons of a lifestyle. Music, video, theaters, magazines, and theme parks, the new churches of a commercial civilization in which the malls and public squares are all constructed around image exports creating a common world taste around common logos, advertising slogans, stars, songs, brand names, jingles, and trademarks. Do you see what he's suggesting? That the powers of this world have actually undertaken an aggressive campaign to win the allegiances of emerging generations and just blur the whole line between consumerism, lifestyle, and religious faith. (laughs) 
He goes on to note that it's only a matter of time before the shopping mall replaces the church as the center of religious devotion, if it hasn't already. Wow. Indeed, affluenza has its own breeding grounds, right? Temples for the infected like me to worship at. Nordstrom's Boutiques or Century 21 outlets, you take your pick. (laughs) By me, it's the Short Hills Mall for the upscale yuppies or Price Club for the soccer moms. Pottery Barn, Bloomingdale's, the internet, 2 in the morning. You can stoke your fever anywhere. Last week, we looked at four symptoms of affluenza that Jesus highlighted in his parable of the rich fool. Remember, we, we learned, he, Jesus was giving us, he's saying, I'm going to paint you a picture here. You know you might be suffering from a case of affluenza if, one, your existing prosperity is overshadowed by a nagging sense of scarcity. scarcity. That man... Jesus told was already a rich man, and then when he was blessed, he, he said, oh, thank heavens, I was about to run out. And he was in the upper 3% of his population, like actually most of us are in the upper 1% of the world's. But we assume we don't quite have enough. The second symptom we looked at was that when blessed with material prosperity, it didn't even occur to you it might be for the benefit of others. We assume it's for us. Jesus says this rich man had this field, and it produced a great crop, and he said... Wonderful, i got to build bigger barns, because <laughs> clearly this is for me. No thought that actually the way Jesus, we might be blessed by God materially, might actually be for us to pass it along to other people that God wants to reach. It doesn't even occur to us. The third thing that Jesus highlighted is that you, we invest significant time, energy, and effort to acquiring and taking care of your stuff. So this man said, remember, I said to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. He's an American, right? Three-car garage, bigger. i got to store all this stuff. (laughs) The fourth and final symptom was, he said, and I'll say to myself, (laughs) I will take life easy, I will eat and drink, and finally be merry. That was his exact words in Jesus' parable. And you know you have affluenza if you think leisure, take life easy, and consumption, eat and drink, is the ultimate source of happiness. Be merry in life. That's it. I ask you to respond on our liquidchurch.com blog and let me know if you saw yourself reflected in any of those. And I want to actually thank you for your honesty. The response of someone who titled themselves Touched My Nerve was particularly telling. He wrote, wow, the subject of money is where the rubber hits the road for me. I hate to say it, but when all is said and done, it's the one thing I trust in most. In times when companies are downsizing and the cost to live near where there are decent jobs is so high, and when the unexpected happens so suddenly, hoarding my treasure in my barn is my comfort zone. Just this week, I had an unexpected $1,000 expense in my car after I hit a deep pothole in the road. But because I hoard in my barn, I didn't think anything of it. See, my precious is my beamer. It's two years old, and I still sit in it alone in my garage and stare at it. Thank you for your honesty. I work and work and work until I am sick inside, lonely and with no time left for anyone, let alone God, to keep my comfort zone intact, to keep my rep at work at a high so I always get the big raises. If the boss wants something immediately or yesterday and gives a completely unreasonable deadline that requires working around the clock, I say, sure, no problem, and save the day. Why? I used to think it was to get a pat on the back and to feel I did a good job for someone else, and it is that. But really... It's only that after I've made sure I got enough cash in the bank to not have to worry, to be able to spend and spend and spend on music, clothes, and yes, another precious ring, the iPod. Thanks for that. 
This year, I too was taken in by an extreme need for this little toy. Thanks, I'm not alone. Which a few days before Christmas had waiting lists at the store for. This year, it was a thing to have. Everyone has got one, so why not me? I can't be left out. I can't be left behind. Knowing full well another better toy will be out before I could even fill 1% of this thing. So here I am, a Christian, saying, I trust God. But only after I know I have enough cash to satisfy my appetite and pad my comfort zone. I don't even trust myself as much as that. Tim, this is going to be an amazing message here. I hope it helps me. It might be the single biggest thing of myself I haven't yet given to God. So I'm in extreme need of it. Maybe I'm too far gone to be helped, but we'll see. Just how in the world can I say I trust him when I serve another God? Small, lowercase g. Wow. Money and your stuff. I know, it's a touchy, sobering topic. And quite honestly, I'd like to avoid it altogether. (laughs) But Jesus talks about it more than any other subject, and apparently if we're to believe the testimony of Scripture, it's a pretty vital issue in God's eyes. Look, if it were up to me, (laughs) I'd agree with Randy Alcorn. He wrote a brilliant little book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He said, were I the Bible's editor, I would cut out much of what it says about money and possessions. It's often extreme, sometimes redundant, and occasionally shocking. And after all, we come to the Bible for comfort, right? Not a lecture on finances. If we want to know about money, we can go to Fortune, Forbes, or Wall Street Journal. Scripture should concern itself with the spiritual and heavenly. Money is physical and earthly. The Bible's religious, but money is secular. You know, it's like let God talk about love and grace and brotherhood. Thank you. And the rest of us can talk about money and possessions. But for serious Christians, some hard questions are in order here. How could the Bible's author and editor, that is God, justify devoting twice as many verses to money than to faith and prayer combined? Didn't he know what was really important? Apparently money, what we spend it on, who we give it to, is of incredible significance to God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn for a moment to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And we're going to be scrolling around tonight. There are pews in the middle aisles. You can pass them down. So make sure you keep a finger in there because we're going to be skipping around just to get a little bit of a survey of of God's perspective on possessions to orient us. Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. This is the end of the chapter. The closing vignette in verses 41 through 44. In this passage, we meet a poor widow. Actually, no one with affluence or any significance. She had nothing at all. And Mark tells us she went to church. Verse 41, where Jesus was. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Look, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Stop. Look at the beginning, verse 41 there. <laughs> Notice we are not told, and Jesus happened to see a woman <laughs> giving her offering. No, apparently Jesus deliberately sat down opposite the place where offerings were put and watched the crowd. 
And, and he's doing this intentionally. He's interested in who's giving what. It's hard to say, but he is. And what attracts his attention in common is surprising because it's a poor woman who has nothing, not even two nickels to rub together, two tiny copper coins, not a penny. And that's who attracts the Savior of the world's applause. And why? Because she actually ran counter to what we'd all naturally expect, that someone without much financially would be primarily concerned with upgrading her situation, <laughs> acquiring more, right? At least, at least save what you have. No, Jesus says, she's gotten it. This, my children, is what true riches is all about. She's infected with something else. A godly mindset that sees investment in my father's kingdom as the wisest upgrade of all. In fact, in some ways, she represented a fever break of affluenza. And we'll look at a few fever breaks tonight. Because affluenza, as we said, the first thing causes our existing prosperity to be overshadowed by a nagging sense that we don't have enough scarcity. Yet this poor widow exhibits a shocking antidote in Jesus' eyes. See, her existing scarcity is overshadowed by a sense of gratitude. It didn't matter that she didn't have a lot. She didn't care. She figured out a way to give back to God. Undoubtedly, she'd been convinced that God had done great things for her. And as a result, she scrapped and figured out a way to reflect her thankfulness just back to him financially. It didn't make sense. She had nothing, a very real case of material scarcity, yet it's overshadowed by this richness of soul that spoke something very powerful about her love for her heavenly father. Gratitude is an antidote to the flu. A sense of thankfulness and generosity towards God just kind of breaks our fever. And what this woman did with her money became an object lesson for Jesus' disciples. He actually highlights this tiny act of sacrificial generosity as the telltale sign that the Spirit of God is living and activated within this person's heart. So here's a question for us. If Jesus were to gather right now, Jesus is in heaven, some of his followers come around (laughs) to peer down at you, look at her, pointing at your handling of money as an object lesson, what kind of lesson would it be? That you're generous to the proportion that you've been blessed with? What, what story would it tell? What would it reveal about your faith? I know, I know, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. Especially the way Jesus frames the, the issue for us. Al, Alcorn writes, in the haunting and immensely important question, quite honestly, is why? Why did the Savior of the world say more about how we are to view and handle money and possessions than about any other single thing? Why? The enigma deepens when we look at how closely Jesus actually linked money to salvation itself. Just a brief survey of scriptures reveals an unmistakable link between finances and the authenticity of our spiritual faith. Flip over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, okay? This is the story of Jesus' memorable encounter with Zacchaeus. You know, the infamous corrupt tax collector. And you might recall Zacchaeus was a greedy extortionist. He actually had a good job in that day, a job that allowed him to shake down his weaker neighbors in a pyramid-style tax scheme in ancient Israel. And he was very good at it. As Luke 19.2 notes, he was the chief tax collector, so he's at the head of this pyramid scheme. He's a chief tax collector, and he's very wealthy. But something happens when he meets Jesus. We're simply told that Jesus picked him out of the crowd. Remember this, Zacchaeus, you come down. I want to go to your house. Went to his house, and something changed inside of Zacchaeus. His encounter with Christ caused such an earthquake, like a self-quake. In the life of this self-centered and greedy little man, that he stands up in verse 8 and says, Look, Lord, 
Here and now, look at verse 8. I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Watch. What's interesting and what I'd like you to notice is Jesus' response. What does he say? He does not merely say, good idea, Zacchaeus. What Christian generosity. What does Jesus say in verse 9? Today, salvation has come to this house. (laughs) You capture this. You see what Jesus is saying? It's amazing. Jesus judged the authenticity of this man's salvation based on his willingness, his cheerful eagerness to part with his stuff (laughs) for the glory of God and the benefit of needy people. Wow. Generosity, charity, sacrificial benevolence towards those in need. A hallmark of salvation itself? Apparently so. Again, Jesus is highlighting this like fever break for us. We learn that we have affluenza if when you're blessed with material prosperity, it doesn't even occur to us it might be for the benefit of others. But the tale of Zacchaeus teaches us just the opposite is true of those who are touched by Jesus in a real way. If you've been truly saved... The generosity of God towards you results in the spontaneous, here and now, blessing of others, especially the truly needy. You're touched by God, by Jesus. You can't help but look around you, see who's in need, and just spend your resources on them. I know, I know. We're like, what? (laughs) This wasn't about payback. Do you notice that Zacchaeus doesn't simply like make good on the way that he cheated people, though he does pay back four times the amount to the folks he extorted. Rather, I'm impressed by his eager cheerfulness to part with his money for the good of others he doesn't even know. Here and now, Jesus, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Something supernatural (laughs) happened in this man? A formerly infected affluenza carrier had his fever broken by Jesus' touch. And his entire perspective on life changes. He gets it. Whoa, I thought life was about acquiring as much as I could get my little fingers around. It's actually about sharing what God's blessed me with for the glory of God and the good of his other children. Zacchaeus just gives it away. Spontaneously, almost impulsively, as his eyes are like open for the first time. And Jesus remarks, today, salvation has come to this man's house. All right. Zacchaeus is not an isolated case. Turn one chapter back, actually. You don't even have to flip a page to Luke 18. Verse 18. Jesus is approached one day by a prosperous young man, a rich young ruler is how he is described, who asks him this question. This is, I love this. He actually says to Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. And now stop right there. Because all good evangelical Christians recognize this as the question you want a non-believer to ask, right? He's saying, how do I get to heaven? And, you know, if you've been in evangelism class, you're like salivating now because you imagine Jesus just been like, oh, here we go. Here come my four spiritual laws. I'm going to jump on them. He's like ready to explain about sin and grace and substitutionary atonement, but he doesn't. In fact, Jesus does something here quite confounding. This guy wants to know about salvation. How do you get eternal life? And after some polite banter about the Ten Commandments, Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come 
follow me. What? What's going on here? I mean, is Jesus like suggesting you can like buy your way into heaven or something? What's the deal? What does eternal life have to do with my stuff? Apparently quite a bit. The text says, when the man heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth, affluenza carrier. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Are finances and faith linked in Jesus' mind? Inextricably. Affluenza tells us the point of life is to acquire, possess, hoard, and consume. Improve our lot, upgrade our condition. You know you have it if, right, you invest significant time, energy, and effort into acquiring and taking care of your stuff. But the fever break Jesus offers this rich young man tells a different story. In a very real way, Jesus suggests parting with your stuff is a pathway to salvation. The exact opposite. Money and our stuff, our clothes, our cars, our homes, what we listen to, where we eat, what we do for entertainment is a very real idol in people's lives. That's what Jesus is highlighting. And he's teaching us that until that idol is toppled, we actually won't be able to enter the kingdom of God and experience the life that is truly life. Again and again. But it's not just Jesus. Throughout all of Scripture, God makes clear that there's a direct correlation between the sincerity of our salvation and how we handle money and our stuff. Skip back now all the way to Luke chapter 3. I'm going to keep us in that gospel. And even before Jesus is on the scene, John the Baptist... <laughs> now, John the Baptist, okay, was a, was a pretty fire and brimstone kind of guy. <laughs> Right? He preached a hardcore, no compromise gospel of repentance, even highlighted this astonishing connection. In verse 10, look at this. This is Luke chapter 3, verse 10. The crowd surrounding John asks him what they should do to bear the fruit of true repentance. And again, you, ex- you expect, like, he's going to drop the hammer, a conceptual response about sin, forgiveness in heaven, the afterlife, etc. Now, John says three things. Look at verse 11. First, he tells them to share their clothes and food with the poor. Verse 11. One, you want heaven? The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Then he moves on to the tax collectors and tells them not to collect and pocket extra money. Verse 13. And then finally, to the Roman soldiers who are standing on the outskirts of the crowd, he says, don't extort money. Be content with your pay. Now catch this. In all three cases, the conclusive proof of genuine spiritual change, repentance, was an altered perspective on the handling of money and your stuff. In other words, the fruit of true repentance is best seen in how giving and generous we are towards others, especially those in need. Are we thinking about getting a new blouse, or are we seeking ways to give people the shirt off our back? It's an easy translation. You got two tunics, give one away. Are we scheming for ways to make more money, finagle a raise, or get a promotion, or are we content? There's a word for you. Content with your current pay. How are you with your job? With what you're making? Contentment with what we have. A, a mark of salvation? Not just the fruit of the Spirit? Apparently so. <laughs> and that, honestly, is the hardest one for me to swallow because a sense of contentment is scarce in a culture gripped by affluenza. On our church blog, Maggie chimed in with this revealing post. She wrote, I'm coming up on one year working my first New York City job. 
I've observed and experienced a lot firsthand about how much of an idol money can be. For example, by now, everyone who works in a firm that hands out year-end bonuses has received and probably spent or earmarked it. I was out to dinner Friday night, and one of my dinner mates was commenting on the lackluster bonus he and his office mates received. I was blessed to receive a bonus at my company as well. It's my first one ever, and I thought about how I was going to spend the money instead of who I could give it to. When I did receive the monies, I was disappointed to learn that more than half was taken away in taxes, but tried to correct myself that at least I got something. something. For a fleeting moment, I thought about giving it to someone I know who's going on a long-term missions trip, but quickly rationalized that it was better spent on treating myself. (laughs) Anyway, that's how the message spoke to me last night. This message will definitely course-correct my financial priorities in a much higher way than watching the Susie Orman show ever will. (laughs) And and the stories go on and on and on. I know you have one of your own. How did we get here? I, I can't even get beyond it. I, like, read this, and Jesus is talking about, like, this other reality, and I'm like, how did we get here in this like larger construct of bigger, better, faster, more? Because it wasn't always like this. In fact, if you take a quick survey of actually our spiritual forefathers and mothers in the faith, it's kind of shocking to see how quickly we've traveled down the road to consumption, debt, and discontentedness. It's kind of full throttle over the last hundred years or so. Evangelical scholar Rodney Clapp noted that uh, several essential features of like today's capitalism, right, for business people, were like unimaginable. <laughs> were positively actually condemned throughout most of Christian history. Let me give you an example, a little history lesson. Throughout church history, like up through the Reformation, the charging of interest was actually totally prohibited. In earlier eras, the church would have regarded stock market speculation as nothing more than gambling. And, you know, I mean, we have no, we, we, we have no second thought about consuming goods or experiences for, like, you know, relaxation and amusement, you know. Go, hey, we're going out to dinner, now we're going out to a movie. Puritans? <laughs> Our Christian forebearers of other strains, they saw consumption principally just for pleasure as sin. (laughs) For instance, in Boston in in 1635, a Puritan merchant was hauled before the general court of the Commonwealth and convicted of greed because he had sold his merchandise at 6% profit, which was 2% above the maximum allowed by law. Can you imagine that? 4% interest was considered a crime, What would they make of our 19% credit cards, right? Answer, nothing. Because virtually no one bought anything on credit. We've come so far in so short a time, become so rich and actually grown so poor in the process. I came across an interesting timeline tracing the outbreak of affluenza that shed some helpful light on the situation. Because it's, it's not just like the world polluted our spiritual faith. And the reality is that along the way, Christians have actually merrily skipped down the road of consumerism. This is a kind of a quick, just lesson to give our current state some context. Believe it or not, the first strains of the virus surfaced with the founding fathers and mothers of our country in the early 1600s. Now, we all know from grade school, right, that actually was the desire for riches, right? That was a catalyst for the exploration of the new world that became the U.S., right? Yet the first white colonists were mostly people who rejected the materialism of England, and the Puritans, they actually believed material instincts would displace God from people's hearts. said, any excess wealth you have, give it to the poor. Quakers who colonized Pennsylvania, they believed like freeing yourself from material goods was going to free your spirit for social service. But by the 17th century, the abundance of the new frontier and the opportunity for entrepreneurship began kind of corroding that Quaker and Puritan practice of simplicity. 
English traders like reported that, that orders began pouring in for like lace and other luxury goods, and the leaders tried but mostly failed to stem the tide of resistance. Historians like, this is great, historians like to joke that the earliest Christians, the Puritans and the Quakers, they came to this country to do good, and they ended up doing well. The affluenza virus was alive and multiplying in England in the 1700s. The colonies in the New World actually needed to keep the English aristocracy kind of living in the lap of luxury. And so the thought was more and more taxes to get money away from these new Americans, and hence you had the Boston Tea Party, right? Just one example of colonists rebelling against the rich back in England. But the simple living kind of movement actually started. You actually had people like uh, Sam Adams. He was more than just a beer maker. (laughs) He's like, this is getting out of control, guys. We've got to scale back. And in the young United States, the voices of frugality were kind of drowned out for a moment, just a moment, by the sound of money being made. By 1845, people were already feeling that materialism was out to destroy the American spirit. You know Henry David Thoreau, right, whose famous book Walden, a two-year experiment in simple living on the shores of Walden Pond, and and appealed to Americans, simplify, simplify, and talked about the rewards of living in harmony with nature and living more fully alive. But only 30 years later, after Walden... A store was born. (laughs) Cha-ching! In the 1870s, astute retailers like Marshall Field in Chicago and John Wanamaker, actually who was head of the Sunday School movement, came upon this idea of a thing called a department store. And this was the big idea. What if shopping was not for necessity, but for fun? Leisure. Up to this point, this is, okay, so it's only like 100 years ago. Never, a human being had never conceived of shopping as something to do if you like felt bored or if you were like feeling blue. Think about it. Prior to this time, people actually just made a list of basic needs and presented their list to clerks who, what did they do? Turned around, took the things off shelves, filled it, handed back the baskets, like Little House on the Prairie. Up to this point, that's it. (laughs) But savvy retailers said, stores are destinations. And they put tea rooms, concerts, fountains, spectacular furnishings, and art. And the idea was it gave women who had few opportunities to escape the home a socially acceptable place now to kind of linger in public. And the idea was to make the store a social destination. You're not only going to the store to have your needs filled, you're going to discover your wants. One-stop shopping. And so this store, Francis Wanamaker's, was the precursor to today's shopping mall. Think about the shopping mall. What do we got there? Can you eat there? Can you do your banking? Can you leave your children? (laughs) Food courts, movie theaters, that encourages you to come and spend all day and spend everything. (laughs) What do you do when you're bored? Call in, often I go to the mall. That's a recent phenomena in our culture's history. Author Mark Twain dubbed that period near the turn of the century the Gilded Age because then we had a major shift. Advertising started. And advertising, according to the Thompson Red Book, was to aim to teach people that they have wants, which they didn't recognize before, and how those wants can be supplied. Finally, in the 1920s, a majority, actually, of Americans kind of discarded thrift and just totally embraced consumption. GMAC, right? The car company launched the innovative business of making loans for auto buyers. Go ahead, Jen. This is the first of buy now, pay later. The first time in the 1920s, credit started. And Americans began to use new credit plans on everything as well, from sterling silver, diamond rings. So the idea of buying something only when one had money to pay for it what had been normative for every generation prior? Bye-bye. <laughs> Installment buying credit cards were key means to establishing consumption as a way of life. There's actually a point in time that historians call the beginning of the American consumer culture. 
And that was 1925 when General Motors introduced the yearly automobile model change, which I gave you a few clips of. It's kind of funny. In years before, Henry Ford joked that you could have his car in any color that you wanted as long as it was black. That's when cars first came out. Does the yearly model change like sound insignificant? It wasn't. Catch this. Again, this is only 100 years ago. It meant that it no longer mattered whether a product worked anymore. If it didn't look right, it was out of style, and you need a new one. The first time this was introduced into culture. You know those Joneses we're supposed to keep up with? This is when they moved into the neighborhood. You got last year's model? Oh, pity you. Planned obsolescence was introduced. Never before people thought of like getting rid of something that was out of style. Now we take it for granted. I mean, what do you do when... Do you, when do you get new clothes? When they wear out? No. When they go out of style. That's a phenomenon that's as recent as 80 years ago. Never before had people connected the notion of discarding something if it still worked. The, de- the Depression and war actually made very little, little dent. And when the war finally ended in 1945, there was a great deal of pent-up consumer energy. And stoked by advertisers and everything, but kind of that what was left in, after the wake of World War II just fueled this kind of steep, heady climb to this culture that we live in today. In the 1950s, actually, it was Diners Club that introduced credit cards, okay? This is in the generation of some of us here. And they were first actually promoted to traveling salesmen for convenience on the road. In the early 1960s, other companies kind of got in the business saying it's a time-saving device rather than a way to spend money you don't have. And the idea was to charge everything but have just one bill to pay at the end of the month. Amex, MasterCard got in, and, and it was on. Continuation of our pop quiz from last week. True or false? Americans carry $1 billion in personal debt, not including real estate and mortgages. False. Americans carry $1 trillion in personal debt. It's approximately four grand for every man, woman, and child, not including real estate and mortgages. In the mid-'70s, Congress actually had to step in and regulate the credit card boom by, by, by banning the mass mailings of cards to college students and others who hadn't requested or afford them. Now, of course, you can use a credit card and, you know, buy a hamburger at McDonald's. I know. I've done it. <laughs> it, was one, it wasn't McDonald's. I was once at Wendy's. How ghetto was this? I bought a 99-cent off the value menu, and I gave them a credit card. <laughs> Uh, the 60s actually bought about a short-lived like little mini-revolt against affluenza, right? Go hippies. It struck back, right? Disillusioned by the Vietnam War, politics, and the consumer culture, a significant segment of our nation's youth kind of rebelled in the 60s. We grew our hair long, rejected fashion, and refused to go along with Americans' you know, conformity and materialistic values. However, what happened to that little movement? Swallowed whole when savvy corporations appropriated the hippie look as a fashion statement, and started marketing the hippie culture. Suddenly, the revolution became cool, generating millions more in profits and furthering a new trend, which is why, to this day, we pay extra for, um, oh, authentically distressed jeans (laughs) with holes in them. What started out as a revolt against consumerism, who needs new clothes? Wear your jeans till they have holes in them, became cool, jeans with holes. But they're extra because they're distressed and authentic. 90 bucks, please. What? What? This is our lifetime, folks. In the 70s, where I was born, 71, several things happened to make Americans begin thinking that economic growth actually maybe is not so great. Remember the uh, the 73, 74 Arab oil embargo, right? Gas shortages and everything. And finally, finally, a president weighed in. (laughs) Jimmy, good old Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. 
He actually took the crisis to heart. It's amazing. I saw this. In his inaugural address, he said, we've learned that more is not necessarily better, that even our great nation has recognized limits. And this became like a theme in his, in his presidency. I saw this amazing. I'm not going to show you the clip. But I saw him do this speech. Yeah, older people might remember this. He makes this speech where he actually addresses our materialism. He says, in a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities and our faith to God, listen, too many of us now worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but what one owns. Yeah, that message didn't work out too well for him. <laughs> when it was re-election time, the Republicans had a very different message for the nation. And Carter lost by a landslide and ushered in the 1980s. Ronald Reagan, right? Carter's opponent in the 80s had nothing but contempt for this idea that Americans should reduce their consumption. I mean, he, he proclaimed it morning in America, and he's frequently described as like a shining city on a hill. He's a popular president. And those little bumper stickers said, small is beautiful, bigger is better. Yuppies replaced hippies. Greed is good, proclaimed who? Gordon Gecko, right? In the Academy Award-winning 87 film Wall Street. Lifestyles of the rich and famous with host Robin Leach. Dreams only money can buy. The most successful television show in the history. That was like a precursor to reality television. Now, critics will blame tax policies and trickle-down theories of Reaganomics for the massive redistribution of wealth that occurred in the U.S., but guess this. Whatever, whoever to blame. By the end of the 80s, 33% of all personal wealth in our nation was in the hands of 1% of its households. 1% controlled more than a third. In the 90s, we had virtual uh, insanity, Right? <laughs> Consumerism as a way of life reached its zenith with goods and services now funneling directly into consumers' homes through that little hole in the wall we call the Internet. Cable channels like the Home Shopping Network laid the groundwork for all purchasing, and online purchases began rivaling sales in bricks-and-mortar shops. How many, how many of you actually did some Christmas shopping online this year, right? I mean, did all of it. I know there are many people who did it all. Like Ryan, thank you, Ryan. <laughs> Glenn's son, Ryan, did all of it. This is a mar you understand, this is a marketer's dream come true. You can shop while sitting on the couch in the comfort of your pajamas or underwear. Anytime, anywhere, whenever the urge hits you. You hear a song on the radio you like? Download from iTunes. You need a book or a flat screen TV? Get it from Amazon. Can't sleep? Surf eBay and buy other people's junk. <laughs> One click on the mouse and cha-ching! You see, impulse buying was never so easy. Our wants literally at our fingertips, and most of us have never been in a more precarious position financially. And this brings us right up to about the present. Here's your little history lesson for the day. So it gives us a sense how we got here and how acute our condition is as a people. How far are we from Jesus' dream of what the kingdom of God would be like on earth? It's hard, but Jesus draws this unmistakable link between how tightly we hold on to our stuff and go after it and how deeply we're actually connected to the heart of God. Last example, turn to the book of Acts. We know this one from our brief study of the early church last fall. Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. After the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and filled the early Christ followers, what followed? How did we know that the Holy Spirit was actually... Now, on these people. What were some of the things? You can call them out. All right, signs. Miracles. Miraculous healings and wonders. Yes. But perhaps the greatest wonder of all was what, what happened with their wallets. <laughs> Verse 44 explains. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods... 
They gave to anyone as he had need. Now, let's stop there. Because I know we've already offended the capitalists, which are all of us, right? This was not the earliest recorded example of communism. (laughs) This was an unexplainable, supernatural response to being filled afresh by the spirit of the living God, folks. As Randy Alcorn writes, to liquidate and like disperse cheerfully the assets that you spent a lifetime acquiring was no more natural than it is now. And that's the whole point. Conversion in the filling of the Holy Spirit were always supernatural experiences that produced supernatural responses. There was still the private ownership of property, but all of a sudden joyful giving and sharing of property became the norm of this new kind of community. And the world had never seen it before. Once they'd been filled by the Spirit of Jesus in a new way, the fever of affluenza broke. And people's entire perspectives about money and their stuff were radically altered. It's kind of nuts to think about this, but just to give you, wow, what kind of church do you want to be? (laughs) This early church actually eliminated poverty among them. Chapter 4 of Acts goes on to describe, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. A little bit different than our current like ethos of striving for our own McMansion on the hill. <laughs> Three-car garage, gating it in, keep others out. Make no mistake, folks. The dream of God is very distinct, very different than the American dream. And this is the final fever break that scripture offers as an alternative to affluenza. Do you remember that final symptom? You think leisure, take life easy. Consumption, eat and drink, is a source of happiness. Be merry in life. When the fever broke in the early church, radical generosity and sharing became a central source of their lasting joy. Can you imagine being so impacted by the love of God you, that you actually felt compelled to like liquidate your 401k in order to look after the less fortunate brothers or sisters in the community around you? I know, you'd be locked away. It's craziness. That's God's dream for money. That far from being something that drives and controls our decisions, it simply becomes another tool for making the kingdom, invisible kingdom, present and visible here and now on earth as it is in heaven. You know, we all say it. We want our life to be about something bigger than ourselves, than our dreams, our fevered visions of the good life. They're, they're so small. Last week I told you about my friend who's 35 and is so juiced about the idea of retiring in 10 years. Damn, 45, I could be completely done. Just, you know, check in once a week, play golf. His dream for the good life, 10 years from now, is that his life will totally lack purpose. I can golf almost every day, chase a little ball around, travel, see the sights. And it's all kind of cloaked under this, you know, see God's beautiful creation, da da da, <laughs> and be merry. Jesus says, You missed it. You thought too small. My Father's dream of the kingdom come 
through his people is so much bigger. You think of this. The early church gave themselves, what was their vision? Let's wipe out poverty. What's our goal? What's our goal? A bigger parking lot? More candles? I feel, I feel like I, I'm done. I don't want to be a part of it anymore. I want my life to count. To become about something bigger than me. Partnering in fulfilling the kingdom dreams of my father. Let's wipe out poverty. If affluenza is the disease, folks, there's only one cure. And that is a fresh filling of Christ's spirit anew in the hearts of his people. Money is the litmus test of our salvation. That's what the Bible says. Of our true character. Alcorn calls it an index of our spiritual life. In a sense, how we relate to money and possessions is the story of our spiritual life. Just think about the text we've looked at. It's the hallmark of Zacchaeus' salvation. Today's salvation came to this man's house. It's the authenticating mark of repentance for John. It's the stumbling block, actually, for the rich young man. And it's the sterling example of the poor widow. And the most dramatic manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the early church, that's for sure. How about you? How about you? Be honest. I, I, I dare say my own history with money and stuff tells a very different story. <laughs> um... Tom Sign is the author of a book called Mustard Seed versus McWorld. He helped me even just kind of awaken me to the crisis of consumerism for young Christians like us living in the 21st century West. And he hits the nail on the head. He writes, for all the talk about the lordship of Jesus, my generation sold the young, the American dream with a little Jesus overlay. For all the talk about lordship, the real message to the Christian young is the message that drives McWorld. Agenda one is getting ahead in your job getting ahead in the suburbs, getting your upscale lifestyle started. Then, with whatever you have left, follow Jesus. Ouch. That's Truth hurts. That hurt me when I read it. It might look like this charted out. What are your financial priorities? Does anyone do a budget for the new year? Number one, career success. Two, housing upgrade. I got to get my own kind of thing. Then get my affluent lifestyle started. Upscale social life, go to the right restaurants. Financial security, got to start putting the stuff away. Entertainment, where I'm going, trips and leisure. Oh, oh yeah. And Jesus, too. First Timothy 6. The Apostle Paul counseled his young apprentice, his name was Timothy, in a letter that might serve as like kind of a red flag to our generation as we kind of charge up the hill. He writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Timothy, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Affluenza is an iceberg, according to Paul, that can actually shipwreck our salvation. It is possible 
in our pursuit of the latest and greatest, as we focus on our own concerns and feather our own nest, it's possible to pierce our souls at the same time. Become racked with worry, anxiety, restlessness, discontent, and miss out on the kind of life that is eternal. Affluence is the enemy of gratitude, of contentedness, of spirit-filled giving in life that mirrors God. So, how do, how do we get out of it? How do you fight back against this? Loosen its grip and step out into the life of joyful giving and true financial freedom that God actually intended for us. Well, we actually begin the counter-assault next week. There is an alternative to affluenza. <laughs> Infection isn't permanent. And though it is not simple, it involves simplicity. And though it means actually increasing probably our giving, it also means first getting out of debt. <laughs> and though it may cost us in the short terms, it has tremendous rewards in eternity stretched out before us. How about you? Do you want to get off the treadmill, the roller coaster, and experience something bigger, real joy, not some dime store imposter? I hope you do. We're going there. And step one of our recovery as a people is next week. All right, let's pray together. Jesus, here I am uncomfortable once again. I feel uncomfortable because these are your words. They're not mine. I don't want people's money. We don't want people's money. You don't even want people's money. You want a bigger house to live in. That is more room in our hearts. So, we want that too. Tonight, we recalibrate our desires with your desires, Lord. We want to be part of the kingdom. A nation without borders. A country that is eternal. Where the weakest and the poor and the neediest are extravagantly cared for. Because that's what you did for us. So thank you, Jesus, for kicking it off by giving your life the most precious commodity given to us as a gift. We thank you for our life and now we humbly ask for actually more, more of your spirit. Do something new in us as a people. Start with me.